Ronald Reagan famously said some years ago, we declared war on poverty and poverty won. That's actually not even true within the United States, that rates of poverty among elderly people have plummeted. The poverty rate among African-Americans has gone down. And it's thanks to measures like Social Security and Medicare and the Earned Income Tax Credit. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I have to say that watching Donald Trump leave the White House a few days ago was one of my great pleasures so far in 2021. It's important for us to remember how meaningful a moment that was. Many liberal democracies around the world do not manage to see off authoritarian populists once they win office. It is rare for them to lose an election for free and fair votes. It is rare for them to accede to that vote as Trump had to, not exactly willingly, but, but was forced to here. And so we should not understate that achievement. Now, of course, there's a lack of parallel here between Democrats and their opponents, which is to say that people who care about the rules and norms of liberal democracy have to win most elections, or ideally every election, against illiberal authoritarian challenges. Those who want to take over the system only have to win a couple of times and concentrate power in their own hands to have a tremendous influence on our political system to be able to do a lot of damage. And so until the Republican Party hopefully returns to the Democratic vote, which it may do in 2024, it may do in 2028, or it may not do for a decade or more, it's very important for its opponents to retain large popular appeal. And that should give all of us a stake in thinking through how Joe Biden will do in office. Now, I think that he actually has an opportunity to be very popular. If he handles the pandemic well, he should be able to preside over a slow return to normality and a economic recovery. If he continues to double down on the excellent themes in his inaugural speech, emphasizing unity, disowning the politics of Donald Trump, but emphasizing that he wants to be the president of all those who did vote for him, making clear that he does not loathe half of America. He wants all of America to come together. I think that can be effective, not reaching every single person, not reaching every single voter, but lowering the temperature of politics and making people on the right less scared of the left, which might also make them less willing to go along with authoritarian attacks on our democratic institutions. And the third thing he should do is some bold action on economic policies that are widely popular, increasing the minimum wage, putting a lot more money into infrastructure, dealing with America's messed up healthcare system, things which, some of which are very progressive, which have a lot of support in the population and which benefit all Americans. Now, I think there's also a danger and the danger is that he will either pursue some policies or dress up some policies in language that is going to polarize and maximize division. One of those examples happened just a few days before he took office when Joe Biden described policies that were going to help a lot of small business owners, but said that his priority was to help business owners who are Black or Latino or Asian over everybody else the implication of the speech seemed to be. That, I think, is precisely 
going to maximize the chance of people feeling like the government is not caring for them, it's not looking out for them, it is distinguishing between people on the color of their skin, even in contexts where that's not appropriate. And so I think a lot of the fate of the Biden administration will hinge on whether he concentrates on the broadly popular policies that are going to uplift all Americans, and especially those who have historically been most disadvantaged, who are most need, but in a way that speaks to all of them, or whether he will make those kinds of rhetorical blunders, which will then be exploited to make people afraid of the government, to make them feel like they have a lot to lose, to make them double down on candidates that fight for them, even if they damage all of us. Well, today it's my great pleasure and honor to have Steven Pinker on the podcast. Steven is the Johnston Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, and more importantly, a member of Persuasion's Board of Advisors. He is the author of many important and influential books, From the Blank Slate to Enlightenment Now. And we actually talked a lot about his forthcoming book on rationality. We really cover a lot of his oeuvre and a lot of the deep questions about this moment. How can we construct a more rational politics and a more rational society? How can we ensure that we continue to make economic and social and scientific progress in the world? And why is it so hard to talk about the fact that the world is actually a better place today than it was 50 years ago? We even go into the big debate about nature versus nurture and whether or not it's important to believe in free will. And finally, you get some wonderful writing tips if you want to write as clearly and as lucidly as Stephen Pinker does. This is the kind of conversation that I really dreamed of having when I started to do the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Stephen Pinker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. So I'm really excited because you told me that you have just finished a new book and I don't know much about it. I know a lot of your work, but I don't know that yet. So it's a book on rationality. What's the thesis? What are you arguing? The subtitle is What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. So part of it involves me being a cognitive psychology professor and uh, explaining the work that people have become familiar with from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and others on the irrationalities, the heuristics, the biases, the fallacies that are built into human cognition, the ways in which we overestimate salient events that are fresh in our imagination, but maybe rare in reality, the way we underestimate how often coincidences can occur, the way we fail to appreciate some of the paradoxes of game theory that make it irrational for all of us to do what is rational for each of us to do individually. But part of it is also explaining the current irrational moment, because as soon as I mentioned that I'm writing on rationality or teaching mm. our first question out of people's mouths is, why is humanity losing its mind? How do you account for the fake news, the conspiracy theories, the pseudoscience, the quackery? And so I do have a chapter on that as well. Something that is less well covered in the standard cognitive psychology curriculum, and that is a challenge for our era. So let's talk about each of these elements. I think that's really interesting. I guess the basic view I take away from Kahneman and others is that we always use these heuristic shortcuts, which serve as well to simplify the amount of mental processing we have to do when we interact with a complex world. But there are lots of contexts, perhaps particularly in the modern world, in which they lead us astray. I guess one of the questions I always have about that is, is there 
anything we can do to actually do better. If we are aware of these biases, will that actually help us to avoid them in real life? Or perhaps the answer is not, but I know of these biases and so I don't apply them in my real life, but that we build institutions that somehow have that kind of thing built in. But I still struggle, you know, if I became, I don't know, if the Biden administration made me the anti-irrationality czar, that sounds like a fun uh, job title. And I had to design institutions that somehow deal with at least the government not uh, falling prey to these biases all of the time. I would have no idea how to do that. And I would, I think, be skeptical about our ability to do that. So can we, once we have become averted to these biases, actually stop ourselves from falling into them? I think you put your finger on all the right issues. The takeaway that a lot of people had from the research on judgment and decision-making is that we are cavemen out of time, we're subject to all these primitive shortcuts and rules of thumb, we're inherently irrational. That can't be the whole story, because unless you think that scientists and philosophers are a special breed of human, we've managed to discover these principles of rationality. We, we discover you know, Bayes' theorem and laws of probability and laws of logic and game theory. So the human mind is capable of grasping them. Also, people do pretty well at, at negotiating a pretty unforgiving environment. I mean, people really hold a job and they fill out their taxes and they put food in the fridge and bring up their kids. Hunter-gatherers live by their wits in, in deserts and in the Arctic and in, uh, in rainforests. So I resist the easy conclusion that we're just plain irrational. However, I think you correctly identified that the rationality that we try to refine in institutions can be very different from the rationality in an individual. Because rationality, it's a means to an end. It's the deployment of knowledge to attain goals the goal may not be the best objective understanding of reality. It could be status within your group. It could be power. And what we do when we implement institutions to improve public rationality is we implement various checks and balances and error correction and peer review and adversarial argumentation so that all of us collectively are more rational than any of us is individually. And so all the institutions that we tend to think work kind of okay, like science, have built-in mechanisms that prevent the irrationality of any one person from dominating. So we have peer review in science, we have empirical testability. In journalism, we have fact-checking. If you contrast some of the great experiments in the digital era, some of them work pretty well, like Wikipedia. It's not perfect, but it's astonishingly accurate, and as we all know, incredibly useful. Uh, whereas, of course, you know, Twitter, not so much. Twitter and Facebook, not so much. And there really is a difference between a kind of collective marketplace that implements certain rules that steer the whole toward rationality without relying on the rationality of individuals. That having been said, the other ingredient that you, I think, correctly mentioned, can we make every individual more rational, I think is also a worthy aspiration. That I'm not the first to say it. H.G. Wells said it in the 1930s, but that in a modern society, probabilistic reasoning and statistics ought to be as fundamental as reading and writing and arithmetic. And some degree of education in the basics of logic and probability and how we naturally run afoul of them, I think ought to be part of our collective discourse. Now, of course, if you just teach something in a curriculum, then the lessons are gone as soon as the exam is over and the students sell their textbooks. So it isn't enough just to have a course in probability. But there are pedagogical 
methods of kind of instilling probabilistic thinking kind of in your bones that make it more intuitive. And I also talk about how even things that look like daunting mathematical formulas like Bayes' rule, B-A-Y-E-S, can be made intuitive if they are presented visually, for example. Yeah, I've been struck at a number of junctures in my life by the ways in which our rational abstract knowledge of rules of logic or our rational abstract embrace of one set of principles goes completely out of the wayside when we're then confronted with a real-life situation with real-life stakes. One somewhat silly example of this is a very famous deontologist in moral and political philosophy, somebody who thinks that, as Immanuel Kant suggested, the, the rightness of an action is not dependent on its outcome, on the kind of consequences it has, but rather on transcendental rules about what is permissible or not and how you cash them out, it's been so different and so on. But this professor was disciplining a student who was saying, look, I didn't mean to do anything badly. What I did didn't have any bad principle attached to it. I just got very unlucky, but it had a bad consequence. And the famous deontology response, that doesn't matter. You're responsible for what happened and we have to punish you which to me is a very striking case of that. So should we strive at an individual level to counter-steer that? Or do we just really have to think at the institutional level and that's the best we can hope? I mean, you sort of gave an answer to that a moment ago, but just to push a little bit further on it. I think both. We can refine our logical and probabilistic intuitions. We can have social norms that would, in the same way that just in my lifetime, there have been changes in just what a decent person could do. Ethnic jokes used to be very popular even when I was a teenager on the radio. Now they kind of would mark you for kind of social death. It's just not done. Or limp-wristed stereotypes of gay people and ditzy wife jokes. These are all things I grew up with as a child. You know, at least in respectable circles, they're not done anymore. So you could imagine a norm change that just reasoning from a single anecdote affirming the consequent, the logical fallacy, could be seen as just self-evidently idiotic. Arguing ad hominem, which unfortunately is all too popular. So there could be changes in the individual from education, changes in informal norms, and mechanisms, institutional mechanisms, that would seek to steer the collective toward greater rationality, acknowledging that none of us is ever going to be perfectly rational, like your professor and like scientists themselves. In a number of places in the book, I know after explaining some principle, I say, well, you know, my own community has been a bit lax in sticking with these canons. And that's why we've had the so-called replicability crisis in social psychology and epidemiology. Lessons such as if you estimate a probability post hoc after you've actually looked at the phenomena, like the sharpshooter fallacy, where you fire a bullet into a barn and then paint a bullseye around the hole. We scientists have been doing that in choosing what statistic to apply to the data after we've collected the data. So that's an example of how simply knowing the principle is not necessarily enough to implementing it. Let me push on the second part of a project as you were presenting it early on, which is whether we are becoming less rational or whether something like the internet is sort of encouraging a form of tribalism or a form of partisanship that perhaps exacerbates some of those irrational instincts. And I guess I'm really torn on that. I mean, I am more deeply aware of the extent to which a lot of our public narrative at the moment is ideologically driven, of the ways in which inconvenient facts are pushed out of the realm of how you talk and write about something, 
I've also been struck in some of the things that I've sort of been close to and how unreliable a lot of the mainstream media reporting is even. And so all of that makes me tempted to think that we live in a particularly irrational moment. But then I sort of stop myself and think, well, look, you know, I wasn't politically aware enough 30 or 40 years ago to have been witness to similar phenomena at the time. Twitter may make people more rational and more tribal. I think that's very plausible, but it may also allow us to see when there is partialism and tribalism driving a lot of the coverage because people can actually surface some of those facts in a way that they couldn't have done a few decades ago. So we're much more aware of the irrationality that we had before. You know, you tend to be an optimist in general, and we'll talk about it later in the conversation. But do you think we are more irrational at this point because of social media and all of those things than we have been in the past? Or do you think we're more aware of it? You know, I tend to think that there's been an increase in inequality in the irrationality. It's not just income. But at the high end, we've never been more rational in the sense that we have resources for fact-checking at our fingertips, which we never did before. There's a New Yorker cartoon captioned Life Before Google, and it has two guys at a bar. One says, I wonder who played the skipper on Gilligan's Island? And the other one says, I guess we'll never know. So now we have the resource to fact-check anything instantly. We have also movements toward greater rationality, such as greater fact-checking in journalism, something that was not nearly as true even 10 or 15 years ago. We have evidence-based policy, something that wasn't even a concept a while ago. We've got a rationality community that tries to encourage people to recognize fallacies like moving the goalposts and whataboutism, and that tries to valorize epistemic humility instead of just pushing an argument as hard as you can, you acknowledge the uncertainty and what could prove you wrong. So that exists at the same time that we have unprecedented means for spreading conspiracy theories and fake news and so on. So the question is, how do we try to, well, really bring up the low end? This is, we don't want to increase equality by bringing down the high end, but how do we make the more rational parts of our culture kind of proliferate downward? I think I'm a little skeptical of that way of presenting things, because I absolutely agree that there is a lot of irrationality at sort of the low end of society, as it were. But I think there's also a lot of irrationality at the high end of society. Now, you're right that when it comes to simple facts, there's probably less error now than in the past, right? It's imaginable that in the past, the two guys at the bar would have settled on an answer as to who played this character that was incorrect. And they went home and said, oh, yes, I'm sure it's that. And sort of that error wasn't corrected for a while. Whereas now they would Google the person and, you know, there it is. And by and large, they would get that right. I mean, I'm sure there's some source, someone on the internet will get that wrong. But, but the one that's top of the search results, that's the one that's on Wikipedia is in fact very likely to be correct. Now, but rationality is something slightly higher than that. It's more than sort of the most base facts about the world of what's the name of the actor who played this character, right? It is, first of all, trying to understand a slightly more complicated causal or conceptual chains or networks. So I'm struggling to find the right term for it. And secondly, what consequences and what implications we should draw from that, right? Now, as you know, as you've written about, in fact, on many of those, we get the world terribly wrong. I mean, most Americans and most people in the West believe that the average person in the world has gotten much poorer over the last decades, or that there's much more poverty than there was in the past. That's a slightly more complicated kind of fact. It's a very important one. And systematically, we get it wrong. And the people at the highest end of society are probably more likely to get it wrong 
than anybody else. I could imagine on this one, I'm guessing, and I may very well be wrong, but I could imagine that Americans with a high school education actually get that one more correct than Americans with a grad school education. It would not surprise me at all. And that's just the beginning, because if you want rationality, presumably it's also about means ends reasoning and thinking about what consequences flow from that. And there's all kinds of other errors that are going to creep in at that point. So is the picture you just painted a little bit too complacent that sort of there's us enlightened people or some enlightened people at the top and sort of as long as they gain hold or keep hold of the institutions or as long as they can sort of spread the knowledge to everybody else, there's going to be progress. I don't trust the rationality of my social circle nearly as much as I would have done five or 10 years ago. I think I would have been naive about it five or 10 years ago. Yes, and by inequality, I didn't mean that it necessarily correlated with income or power or social status, just that the range seems to have expanded at the top end. And you're right, it isn't just access to facts, although, of course, that's important, but even techniques. So, for example, aggregating political polls in 538, methodologically much more sophisticated than polling a while back. Bayesian concepts are often coming into common parlance, the idea of priors, the idea of reasoning by anecdote as a kind of cognitive sin. As these things proliferate, there can be an improvement at the high end. And by high end, again, I mean high end of rationality. And of course, at the low end, you know, we've always had supermarket tabloids and conspiracy theorizing and irrationalities in politics. You know, I remember in the 1972 presidential election, one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination was George Wallace, who just 10 years ago was advocating legal segregation, Jim Crow. And until he was shot, he was a rival to George McGovern for the Democratic nomination. And when Wallace ran in 68, he won five states and 13% of the popular vote. And arguments such as, should women be allowed in the military? Should gays be allowed to marry? kind of live issues not so long ago, and they've been subsumed in the conventional wisdom of kind of things that have been settled. And I think a case like that, the right side won. In science and technology, certainly rationality has been manifesting itself. The fact that we had a vaccine less than 10 months after the pathogen was discovered is quite astonishing. So we have the resources. This is not to deny that there's an awful lot of irrationality. Whether it's due to social media, going back to our conversation about institutional safeguards for rationality. Social media have kind of the opposite because they reward is engagement and shareability, the opposite feedback mechanism for, say, Wikipedia. But it isn't just social media because there are other, I think, kind of centripetal forces. AM talk radio and cable news probably might even have a greater effect on polarization and extremism than social media. Residential segregation, where educated elites tend to congregate with one another in urban areas, might be another reason. So it's not to get social media off the hook, but I tend to think that it's too convenient to scapegoat for every social problem. So what do you think are the biggest dangers to rationality in the coming years and decades? And I don't just mean to the rationality of individual people, but to our ability to maintain institutions but hopefully are capable of correcting for some of our biases and ensuring, for example, that public policy is you know, directed in accordance with scientific insights or public health insights. For I'm not sure, again, that the last year has exactly been a great advertisement for the rationality of those professions either. But where does hope lie for you for creating a society that's more rational? And where does danger lie for a suffering of society in which we lose some of the institutions we have for guarding against damaging biases? 
The biggest danger would seem to be in sectarianism, political sectarianism, or sometimes called political tribalism, although they're not like tribes in the anthropological sense of groups held together by kinship, but more like sects in the sense of religious denominations that each of which thinks the other one is heretical and evil. And so when everything is viewed through the lens of, are you on the morally correct side, namely ours, versus the stupid evil ones, namely the other side, that's probably the biggest distorter. And there's a fair amount of research showing that some of the political hot buttons, especially when they intersect with science, such as climate change, are really not driven by scientific illiteracy, but just by political sectarianism. It turns out that people who believe in climate change don't know any more science than the people who deny it on average. They tend to think it has something to do with toxic waste dumps and ozone hole. Pretty clueless, but it's perfectly correlated with where you are on the political spectrum. The farther to the right, the more denial. So somehow depoliticizing or detribalizing our debates would be one direction. And whatever increases that kind of sectarianism is going to make us collectively irrational. What will make us more rational is well, we've kind of talked about some of the ideas. I think it's very hard to control what ideas become part of the conventional wisdom, and we're often surprised at which ones do and which ones don't, probably because it's a, not a top-down, policy-driven social phenomena, but it may be more like you know, tattooing. Why did everyone get tattoos? Who could have predicted that? Who legislated it? How could you stop it? And the answer is you can't. It's a kind of a social contagious phenomenon that we can't really control. And likewise, in more consequential realms, you know, why did gay marriage become a reality so quickly and the opposition just collapse? That kind of social change in the direction of being more aware of obvious cognitive biases, like reasoning by anecdote, would be something that to the extent we could encourage it, we ought to. Education is one way, but journalism is another. I note that in several of my books, that as much as I hate to criticize the mainstream media because they need all the support they get, they're much better than the alternatives, there is a built-in problem in journalism, which is that since it is driven by events, by anecdotes, and tends to downplay trends and data, it can lead to systematic misunderstandings of the world, such as the one that you mentioned, how it's often educated people who are out to lunch when it comes to trends like decreasing extreme poverty. And it's because when something goes wrong, it's news. When something goes right, it's either nothing happening, which means that it's not news, or it's dismissed as human interest, fluff, feel-good uh, advertising. The, the negativity bias in journalism and the anecdote bias tends to lead to systematic distortions that I would like to see journalism recognize. And to have more dashboards of the state of the world, more our world in data, so that the things that don't happen enter our consciousness as well as the things that do. I think that's broadly right, but I worry that that is at this point too mild a description of the systematic pressures on all journalism, including at this point mainstream journalism, that leads to real problems. So I think what you just described is two long-standing features. If it bleeds, it leads, right? So obviously journalists are looking for the opening to the article that is particularly striking, that is particularly interesting, and that's always going to be more likely to be the extreme case than the typical case. 
And so one case of something is a freak event, two cases of something is a trend, and three cases of something is confirmation that it is definitely the decisive thing that's happening today, right? And that I'm sure was always true. I'm sure that if you go back to the New York Times in 1930, perhaps the commercial pressure was a little bit less, perhaps there was a slightly more state institution. But a lot of those biases were present always and will always be present in journalism. I do think for that there are some new pressures, you know, one of which is that you can know exactly how many people read each article, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why you had so much arts and books coverage in newspapers in 1980 is that nobody ever quite knew who reads what. And so it was easier to keep content that actually I think nobody ever read uh, or very few people ever read, but it seemed worthy. And so it, it was left in. And now the pressure to write the most viral article, the most read article is very, very strong. There's a very clear partisan lean to all of the mainstream media at this point. And it's quite clear that there is an instant blowback whenever a story doesn't fit the prevailing narrative, not just an opinion piece, but also a piece of reporting. And so there's a second set of very strong disincentives, both to a newspaper as an institution, because it might alienate a subscriber base, but particularly to individual journalists. And then, of course, every journalist now has a huge incentive in building a brand and building a Twitter following, building a social media following. And you do that by serving a committed base of people who agree with you. And so it's not just the anecdote bias or the negativity bias. It is that, you know, the smart career move is never to challenge the political uh, suppositions of your followers. And that, I think, can lead to a deep political bubble in which the mainstream media ends up distorting the world as much as anybody else. And that seems to me a more fundamental challenge than the ones you've outlined. I agree. And certainly the anecdote basis of journalism has probably gotten a bit better because there is more data journalism than there used to be. Negativity bias, by the way, has increased. That is, if you look at, use some simple algorithms that do a kind of tone mapping of content of articles, I have a graph in Enlightenment now that shows the emotional tone of the articles in the New York Times. And the trajectory is downward over the last 60 or 70 years, as every objective indicator of the world has improved. The Times has gotten more and more morose. It's not just the Times. It's a sample of a media show the same negativity. Partly that's moralistically driven, that as journalists see their mission as speaking truth to power and exposing corruption and kind of the Woodward Bernstein heroic journalist model. It's been seen as responsible journalism to expose what's gone wrong and as advertising or human interest fluff to, to show what's gone right. And I think that has increased. But it is also true that the identification of partisans that will feed off Fuhrer may have increased with the availability of data. And so some of these changes will have to tap into the idealistic or moral component of journalism. And I think most journalists feel that they didn't choose that career for the money, uh, that they do have a higher calling, which is to inform the public. And there are things that good institutions do that don't necessarily maximize profit, but that carry out their mission of responsible reporting. And to add to that set of uh, kind of professional ethics the idea of presenting statistically accurate picture of the world, including the institutions that succeed as well as the institutions that fail. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I do think that one of the very odd taboos in the mainstream media as it exists now is to talk about progress, actually. And that's slightly different from a negativity bias. I get the completely blameless processes by which you end up focusing more on the negative thing because it's just more interesting to write about. So I sort of get that. I'm always struck by the vitriol it elicits in this political moment when you talk about social progress. 
perhaps it's a kind of bias. I mean, I think what's going on is that when you're saying, hey, things have gotten better on some important metric, you sound like you're callous towards the injustices that persist or the victims that still exist. So I think people sort of, even if you emphasize that's not what they're doing, they always read any sort of emphasis on, look, you know, here and there, things have gotten better over the last 50 years. And actually, if we want to understand how to make sure they keep improving, that's important to know. Because if everything is not getting better, then it seems like we're doing something wrong. If things are getting better, then we're doing something right. And perhaps we have to redouble our efforts and so on. But, but that's actually a really important thing to know about. But how it sounds is, oh, you think everything's okay? Well, what about this? So how do you get around that? How do you... Tell me about it. This is my life. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you put your finger on it. You're better than just about anybody else at making the argument. People still have a response to you, but to give us some tips about how to avoid that response. Well, some of it is, I think, to tap into people's political intuitions or prejudices, if you will, to just show how this negativity bias and cynicism or fatalism about institutions actually feeds into what they already hate. And this is an argument that was made by David Bornstein and Tina Rosenberg four years ago in the wake of the Trump election. So they pointed out that he, above all, capitalized on the feeling that all of our institutions are failing. Drain the swamp, make America great again, only I can solve it, American carnage. But even though progressives, together with the victimhood on the right, have emphasized how everything is failing, it just feeds into the demagogue who says, only I can fail it, and then who wants to burn down our current institutions. So to remind people that what seems like the moral high ground is actually working to embolden some of their, their own enemies, and that is, I think, absolutely true of, of the rise of authoritarian populism, can be part of the message. And to remind people that, you know, progressives, the whole idea is progress is a coherent phenomenon. It is possible. We ought to work for it. And if we do, you know, again, this does kind of push against the grain of a lot of human intuitions, that if we really do want progress, we should be open-minded enough to just kind of you know, look at the data, see what has worked and what hasn't, be aware that some things have worked. As you pointed out, and I've made this argument myself, if you want things to get better, you have to pay attention to what has made them better. If the tumor is shrinking, that's important information. It doesn't mean that the cancer is gone. It doesn't mean that the patient is cured, but it is an important signal. And we have to be aware of the difference between the statement that something is improved and something is perfect or solved. And you can simultaneously believe that things are terrible and things are better than they used to be. What are some areas in which uh, things have been improving because we've been doing the right thing? and where our unwillingness to embrace the fact that there is progress is putting us in danger of actually losing those things or of slowing those developments. And I'm going to ask you sort of inverse of the question afterwards, so I'm not just looking at the positive sides. I think there are a bunch of examples. The most obvious one is the what's sometimes called the, the great enrichment, the great leveling, the great surge, which is the global rise in economic well-being and in health and longevity worldwide, that countries that used to be in still in our stereotypes are kind of basket cases of famine and disease and poverty and early death, have created huge middle class like India and Indonesia and Bangladesh and, of course, China that extreme poverty has been decimated. It's still there. You know, 9% of humanity is still seven or 800 million people. 
So that's an awful lot of desperate people. But it's better than twice that number or three times or five times that number, which is what we used to live with. And so in talking about the costs and benefits of globalization, one of them has to be the massive reduction in extreme poverty and reduction in childhood mortality and early death and so on. So that's one. Another one is a completely different example is I was stunned to look at charts of air and water pollution in the United States and to see how putting aside CO2 emissions, which is in a different category, which have by and large not gotten better, but oxides of nitrogen and particulate matter and sulfur dioxide and carbon monoxide, they've all gone down since around 1970. And it's because of the EPA and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And in the debate on regulation, people tend to forget that you know, regulation has really kind of worked. Not that it solved these problems, but really has made a difference. Likewise, occupational safety. A big cause, especially of the American right and libertarian right, is that the nanny state and choking government regulations are, are strangling American business and freedom. And I was unaware, and I don't think most people are aware, that the number of people who get killed on the job has gone way down. The number of people who get poisoned, the number of people who burn to death, the number of people who drown. People are completely unaware that the regulations are not just kind of a liberal hobby horse, but they've actually saved lives. How many people even know that? Yeah, that's a very striking example because it really is hobbling what is the most convincing argument, right? I mean, if you're basically saying, look, you know, we've had all this terrible pollution since, you know, Rachel Carson and that famous book and so on, and things just keep getting worse and we just keep destroying the earth, then quite understandably, the sort of uh, more ripening response to it is, well, and so like you've had all this regulation and you're stifling all of this business and apparently you're thinking things are getting worse anyway. So what's the damn point, right? And it would be much more convincing to say, look, like, we had a terrible environmental crisis. We solved it. Our economy is still growing, by the way, right? It hasn't destroyed our ability to make a comfortable living and so on. And as a result, you know, we live in a safe environment, but I've never heard that argument. Exactly. I'll throw one other argument out, and that is even in, in uh, poverty, Ronald Reagan famously said some years ago, we declared war on poverty and poverty won. That's actually not even true within the United States, that rates of poverty among elderly people have plummeted. The poverty rate among African-Americans has gone down. And it's thanks to measures like Social Security and Medicare and the earned income tax credit. Now, we still have too much poverty. And again, this gets back to the difference between saying things have improved and things are perfect and they're, they're not the same. We ought to redouble our efforts. But knowing that the welfare state has not been a complete boondoggle, it means that granny is not eating dog food the way the stereotype had it in the, in the 1970s. It's something that we really ought to know. And that is something that I think journalism in its, I don't know if it's in its eyeball and click chasing mode, but to the extent that journalists feel that they have a higher calling to highlight what has worked is essential. Otherwise, as you say, the conservatives will say, well, it's all cost, no benefit. So I think the area in which, understandably, this is most controversial at the moment is race, and particularly in the United States. You know, when I came to this country, it's, it's interesting for me to see the evolution of this. I spent a year in New York in 2005, and when I arrived for my PhD in 2007, and that was an incredibly hopeful moment because of the candidacy of Barack Obama and everything that that represented and the way that he looked at the world. And there was a sense, I mean, there was too much optimism. There was this idea that we were entering a post-racial society, which clearly 
has turned out with hindsight to be deeply naive and was probably nobly naive even at the time is not something that Barack Obama himself ever believed. But now, in the wake of the Donald Trump presidency, there's understandably a focus on all of the ways in which racial animus and racial inequality persist. But I do think it is also leading us to a kind of negativity bias, where we're often talking as though white supremacy was the essence of America, and nothing's gotten better over the last 50 years. What do you think is the argument that there has been progress on this? And how optimistic are you that that progress will continue despite this deeply depressing and fractious political moment? Yeah, I think that's another excellent example. I suspect, I don't know if this is true, but I suspect if you ask people, has racism gotten worse or better over the last 30 or 40 years, most people would say worse. Probably, as you know, educated elites would probably be the first to have the pessimistic view. The data show that's totally wrong, that certainly overt racism has plummeted so much that some of the questions are now taken out of the opinion surveys because they're in the range of crank opinion. Do you think black and white kids should go to separate schools? Would you move out if a Black family moved in next door? Do you think Blacks are inferior in intelligence? Do you think they are lazier? All of those questions, the racist responses have plunged, in some cases, to really pretty close to the floor. Now, you might say, well, that's just a social desirability bias. You're not going to confess your racist feelings to a pollster. And that is certainly true. But if you look at more subtle, implicit measures of racial prejudice, They've shown improvement too. I'll give you two examples. One that I looked at with the help of uh, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, who used to work at Google. If you look at searches for racist jokes, if you look for searches for the N-word on Google, which are almost all searches for racist jokes, they've gone way down just since the 2000s. Fewer and fewer people find them funny. And my colleagues, Mazarin Banaji and Tessa Charlesworth, Mazarin, famous for the implicit association test, the most widely known test of unconscious bias. She's been giving the test since the early 2000s. So they went back on 20 years of data and they just plotted how much people just associate African-Americans with negative words and found that that has gone down over the years. So even the forget what you confess to, just your millisecond reaction times have changed in the direction of less racial prejudice. Again, not zero, but better than it used to be. And as far as we know, during the Trump years, racist attitudes have continued to plummet. What certainly has happened is that what used to be kind of buried under rocks has come crawling out. And we have seen a shocking and horrifying kind of normalization of the, the racist fringe. Those are fascinating data points, the search result, and especially the movement in the results of the implicit association test is a really interesting and I think strong argument against it. I, mean, I would also say that the existence, even the explanation for the fact that a majority, I believe, of Americans had moral qualms about interracial marriage in the early 1990s, and now the number of people who say that has plummeted into, I believe, a single digits, you know, let's say that some portion of the people who have changed their answer of this, or some portion of the people who have entered into the sample as some people have died and other people have turned 18 and so on, secretly have the same views as they did in the past, but they're less willing to say that now. Well, the fact that we live in a society that imposes heavier penalties on saying something like that, and that more people say, well, perhaps in my innermost thoughts, I believe this, but I shouldn't say it. I don't think that's all of the story. And we see interracial marriage rates going up rapidly. So I think clearly there's a sociological change. It's not just social desirability bias. But the shift in the social desirability bias itself 
is an element of social progress that is very important, right? I mean, a society in which people feel they can't say, well, no white person should ever marry a black person, is a better society than a society in which people feel that's a perfectly comfortable and appropriate thing to believe or to say to a pollster. Completely. And as someone who believes the dark side of human nature, I think a lot of repression, inhibition, social norms are a good thing. Because if you peered into people's souls, you'd find a lot of ugliness. So a lot of social progress consists of putting a lid on it. And, and so you're right that if the desirability bias changes, that itself is an important kind of progress. Together with, as you noted, it's you know any social change. This became very clear to me when writing Enlightenment now and trying to make sense of social changes over time is there are two different things that could be going on. One of them is the zeitgeist can change. The other is that old people die and young people become adults. And uh, the generational turnover results in a change in the average opinion. Both of those have been happening, of which the generational change is probably stronger when it comes to more liberal attitudes. Let's touch on one of the things that I think I've most changed my mind about over time, and it is in part due to your writing, which is that I certainly was brought up in Germany in a context in which the right thing to think was that our nature, our attributes are deeply determined by nurture. And there was a vague idea. I don't think it was very clear in people's mind why that was, but there was a sense that any explanation that comes from nature is dangerous, that it somehow leads you down towards some kind of cultural Darwinism or leads you down towards racism or leads you down towards some kind of a cruel right-wing, let's say, fair economic. So I, I don't know what the idea was, but there was a sense that if you want to advocate for nice policies and for social progress and all of those things, then it was much more comforting to find explanations from nurture rather than from nature. And therefore, uh, that's what we did. And I think I was quite doctrinaire about it when I was an undergraduate student, for example, and so on. I now have revised those opinions. I think there's quite strong evidence that a lot of things are indeed nature rather than nurture. But what's the argument for that? And why does that matter? You know, why would it be dangerous for a lot of people to wrongly believe that we're deeply shaped by nurture, even in contexts in which our nature is actually doing part of the job? All of those intellectual themes that you mentioned were the topic of my book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature which both made a case that there is such a thing as human nature, but also tried to diagnose why the attitudes that you mentioned were so prevalent in intellectual life, especially so in Germany for obvious historical reasons, but true in the educated West in general. And you know, I identified four reasons. One of them is the fear of inequality, that if you believe that we're blank slates, that everything comes from culture and parenting and education, well, zero equals zero equals zero. It's impossible for men and women to differ. It's impossible for blacks and whites to differ. It's impossible for rich and poor people to differ. And therefore, racism becomes empirically absurd. And some of the anxiety about nature comes from the fear that if anything is innate, well, that might mean that you know some of us have more of it than others or different stuff than others. Whereas if we're blank, blank is blank. Well, Offering that diagnosis, I suggest that it's a mistake and that our political commitment to equality is not an empirical claim that we are indistinguishable, that we're all clones. It's a moral commitment to treat people as individuals and not to prejudge them based on their group characteristics. There's also what I call the fear of imperfectibility, that if humanity is inherently flawed, if you know war is in our genes, if men are born rapists, 
then there's nothing you can do about it. We've got to settle for all of the injustice and inequality and, and violence around us. And therefore, if we're all blank slates, that means that we could engineer a generation of children that don't replicate all of these prejudices and, and aggressive impulses, and we could offer a sure path towards social progress. I argue that that also is a non sequitur because we could work with the different parts of human nature. There are some ugly parts, but there are also, to quote Abraham Lincoln, there are better angels to our nature, and we can seek institutional arrangements and norms that allow our better angels to repress our inner demons. So social progress is not only possible, but ironically, the guy who believes in human nature is also the guy who's gotten an equal amount of flack for believing in human progress empirically. And I don't think it's a contradiction. It's just because we are complicated, left to our own devices, it's not going to be pretty, but we are clever enough to devise norms and laws and institutions that can bring out our better angels and lead to progress despite our dark side. There's also the fear of determinism, that if it's in our genes, if it's in our biology, then you'll never be able to hold anyone responsible for their actions. Although there you can make the same argument if you're an environmental determinist. If we're completely shaped by our culture, that's another way you, you could deny personal responsibility. So I think there it could go either way. But there's a kind of a more vague spiritual sense that if we're just evolved creatures, if our mind is the activity of our brain, if we've been selected for survival and reproduction, doesn't that kind of drain human life of all meaning and purpose? We're just here to propagate our genes and where's the uplift in that? And if we don't have a more religious conception of an immortal soul and free will and divinely granted moral commandments, then we're living in an amoral hellscape. You know, again, I argue that's kind of a failure of thinking, that if you recognize there is such a thing as human flourishing, we can be more knowledgeable, we can be happier, we can be healthier, and if you strive for that, as far as I'm concerned, that's plenty of meaning, <laughs> plenty of purpose. So anyway, that's that's kind of a precy of the moral arguments in the blank slate, which also have some empirical arguments that, in fact, were not blank slates. Yeah, so I was just going to get to those empirical arguments. It's a wonderful book and I should go and read it. I don't want you to rehash the whole argument. But what's one area in which people tend to ascribe to nurture what the evidence quite clearly shows to be nature and why might that matter? And particularly what's one area, you know, where a lot of people get that wrong, where you keep encountering even now smart people who just will not believe that the evidence is on the side of nature, but when you actually read the scientific literature, it quite clearly seems to point in the other direction. Yeah, well, two examples would be individual differences in personality and cognition. That is, putting aside race, sex, class, just pick two people from the same population. Why is one of them more neurotic than the other? And the answer is pretty clear that a big part of it is what they inherited. A big part of it is random happenstance. Part of it is the culture they belong to. Very little of it is how they were parented. Parents are way overrated when it comes to adult personality. Genes are way underrated. And random chance is also underweighted. You take two identical twins brought up by the same parents, they're similar, they're not identical. What's the evidence for that, right? I mean, to all of the parents listening, I think, by the way, I mean, I say this to my friends who are parenting for the first time all of the time, and I myself do not have kids. But I think that there's a culture of parenting that is hyper-intensive and makes a lot of people miserable because they have no time for themselves. And it's partially because of that moral pressure that 
making sure that my kid has this extra enrichment class, making sure that I give them all of the opportunities in the world. It's going to make them happier. And in a hyper-competitive society, it's going to make sure that they have the edge to have a good life rather than you know suffering the indignities of economic insecurity and so on. What's the best argument I can give them to believe in what I take to be scientific consensus that obviously it does make a difference whether a child grows up in a middle-class home or in a struggling home. Obviously, it is very important that you don't traumatize children through physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, and so on and so forth. But basically, as long as you give them a safe, loving home, uh, it doesn't appear to make much difference whether you also do 17 enrichment activities. What's the evidence for that? You put it exactly right. And it's worked, I think, to the terrible disadvantage of women who, at the end of the day, women are going to do more parenting than men in the vast majority of families. So if you have a culture that says that the future of your child is in the hands of parents, it's going to put much more pressure de facto on mothers than fathers. And indeed, we know, by the way, that working mothers spend more time with their kids than stay-at-home married moms did in the 50s. Part of that is good, but part of it also makes life far more anxiety-provoking for parents, especially for mothers. Well, there's actually three kinds of evidence, and they all point in the same direction. One of them is that if you break the nature-nurture confound, which is present in any biological family, you get your genes from your parents, you're brought up by your parents. So you look at adoptive families, it breaks the confound. Who does the kid grow up to resemble more? the parent who brought him up or the parent who gave him up for adoption. And in general, it's the parent who gave him up for adoption. Or better to compare siblings than parents, but the biology predicts a lot more than the parenting, at least in adulthood. When kids are still in the home, they're affected by a parent. And by the time they grow up, their genes reassert themselves. Not just their genes, also their social class and culture, but that is different from the parenting within the social class and culture. So that's one. The second is comparing identical and fraternal twins, who identical twins share all their genes, fraternal twins share half their genes, who's more similar, always identical twins. And with a little bit of arithmetic, you can also see what's the effect of parenting on top of genes. And it turns out to be pretty small, much smaller than the effects of genes. And then third are those famous experiments where identical twins are separated at birth and brought up in separate families, sometimes separate cultures. And there you find that the identical twins reared apart are not just uncannily similar, but no more similar than the more conventional case where they grew up in the same household. So there are three things that converge. There's a new, a fourth one, and that is polygenic scores. We actually look at the DNA and you see how much you can predict based on someone's genome. And the answer is not as much as you could predict by looking at their twin, but a substantial amount. And so those are four different areas that confirm that when it comes to differences among individuals within a culture, again, not denying cultural differences, but that the genes matter, parenting, very little. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the anxieties here is about a kind of determinism. And I think that is just a mistake of thinking, right? So like you might think naively that if our personalities are deeply driven by genes, then that should mean that siblings all have the same personality. But that is, of course, not true because siblings only share about 50% of the DNA. And I think the most striking evidence for nature rather than nurture is just the difference between siblings. I mean, when you look at members of your family or when you look at the children or friends or when you look at your own siblings, you know, the ways in which a three-year-old and a four-year-old born in the same family, sure, one year apart and sure, one of them is an older sibling, one of them is a younger sibling, but has certain psychological effects. 
but their personalities are just fundamentally different in many cases. Or just looking at the strength of personality of little children that, you know, with their own very strong interests and their own likes and dislikes, that are not in any straightforward way driven culturally by the attitudes of their parents, for obviously it's influenced by them. Uh, that to me is the strongest argument for why the purely nurture argument just doesn't make sense. The most intuitive argument. I, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, the article that kind of broke this open had as its title, Why Are Siblings in the Same Family So Different? by uh, Robert Plowman and uh, Daniels. Then made kind of famous by the late Judith Rich Harris, one of my uh, big intellectual influences. But this the difference between the siblings is a huge phenomenon. There's another one that is not as much appreciated and I think equally profound, but a separate discovery which is, why are identical twins so different? Now, they're, of course, they're more similar than fraternal twins. They're more similar than two people plucked off the street at random, but they're not identical in personality. And anyone who knows identical twins, who has them or has them in their family, as I did, just knows they're, they're different people. Now, how could they be different? They've got the same genes, same parents, same school, same neighborhood, same older siblings, same younger siblings. Whether you think it's nature or whether you think it's nurture, they should be identical. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And they're not. So this, it reinforces, uh, this sort of refutes determinism in the sense of either genetic or environmental determinism. A lot of the variation is completely unpredictable. Now, you could call it free will. I don't think that explains anything. It suggests that a lot of biological accidents, as uh, we developed in the womb, as we developed as uh, children, make a bigger difference than we appreciate. Maybe some axons zigged in one twin and zagged in another one as the brain was gelling. Unpredictable life experiences, you know, who got the top bunk bed, who got the bottom bunk bed, and who knows what else. But they add up and they make a, an enormous difference. And I'll just throw out one study that corroborates this. It came out in science just a couple of months ago. An amazing study looked at a huge sample of disadvantaged families measured everything that social scientists can possibly measure from interviews, from tests, from socioeconomic variables. And the question was, can you predict their outcomes you know, five years down the line? Will they be unemployed, unemployed, drop out of school, child abuse? And they got 50 different teams of social scientists, artificial intelligence researchers to use their best machine learning algorithms to squeeze every drop out of the data to make predictions, the outcome was they predicted very little, almost you know, diddly squat. So there's an enormous amount of unpredictability in human behavior, even knowing everything there is that can be measured. It's humbling for a social scientist to say this, but that is one of the discoveries of social science. Oh, that's fascinating. I was waiting for you to say this model did well and these others did poorly, but in fact, they all did poorly. They all did poorly. This is, of course, related to the wonderful example of, I think it's the Financial Times, or perhaps The Economist that's been running this for a long time, where they get the top hedge fund managers to pick stocks and they get an animal in some sort of random fashion to pick stocks. And on average, the animal does as well as the hedge fund managers, which is lovely. This is also a finding that I, uh, well known in psychology that I talk about in the forthcoming book, which is that we overestimate human judgment and underestimate dumb algorithms. Forget the state of the art of machine learning, but even a simple regression model usually outpredicts the expert. And we know from finance, of course, that an index fund usually outperforms the hedge fund manager. One little detour, and then I'm going to start bringing the conversation to a close. I've been thinking about the strand of a conversation about free will, because I do think that there's this anxiety about determinism. And I'd love to know what you think the role of free will 
is, or what, what do you think the importance of free will is? Because I think I'm a skeptic, not of free will, but of the importance of a question, which is to say that, I mean, one way of telling this is the stupid sort of anecdote about, you know, the philosophers in the seminar room that have finally, to their satisfaction, established that there's no such thing as the free will, and they're very pleased with themselves, and it's gotten a little late in the day, and so one of them says to the other, great, so where should we go for dinner? So, you know, even if you believe that there's no such thing as free will, there's all of these areas in life where you would still feel phenomenologically like you're making a choice. And whereas Tim Scannon in a really beautiful article uh, or series of lectures shows the significance of choice would be preserved. If I believe that you have no free will, I would still have good reason to make sure that when we're eating in a restaurant together, you in fact get the meal that you chose, even if that choice perhaps is somehow less meaningful. Now, I think there's also moral equivalent to that, which is that even if I decided that some of my friends and acquaintances are wonderful, generous people and a few people I know are assholes, though I don't think any of my friends are. I lost those in my 20s. You know, even if I concluded that that's all a matter of, of chance, it's just how they were set up to be, whether by nature or whether by nurture, whether by the genes or whether by the parents, I would still want to hang out and have in my life the people who are good people, and I would still avoid and socially sanction the people who, who are terrible to me and the fellow human beings. So I guess my instinct is to simply sort of think about free will as a philosophical exercise, but, but to think that it has less importance, it helps us importance in human life than we tend to think. I'm, I'm interested to hear in hearing how you feel about this question. I think that's exactly right, because some of it is a confusion of different levels of analysis. I occasionally get emails from smart, young, uh, anguished people who say, I just read Sam Harris's book on free will, and I read Dan Dennett, and now I realize that there can't be any such thing as free will. So does that mean that it doesn't matter what I do, that it's all been chosen, and sort of you know, Calvinist view that it doesn't matter what I, I pick, it's all been preordained? And they're often in visible distress over this uh, epiphany. And I say, well, as my colleague Josh Green once put it, it is not true that every time you make a choice, a miracle happens in the brain. We're neurons. The neurons follow the laws of physiology and chemistry and physics. There's no ghost in the machine. There's no violation of the laws of physics when your brain operates. But that doesn't mean that as we live our lives, that there is no phenomenon that we experience as free will. And an analogy might be, you know, the, the chemists and physicists tell us that matter is mostly empty space. That doesn't mean you can walk through walls or that you have to worry about sitting down in a chair because at the level of analysis at which we live our lives, the empty space is irrelevant and it acts as if it's solid and all of our choices depend on its being uh, solid. You really shouldn't try to walk through a wall, even if you know it's mostly empty space. And likewise, the fact that our brains follow the laws of physics well, laws of physics, when it applies to 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion synapses, all of them involving noisy, stochastic, probabilistic processes, means there's a huge absence of predictability, which we were just talking about. It means that whatever activities you experience as making a choice are real, including your meta-reflection on having those experiences. They're brain processes, but they're real for all that. And stuck inside your brain, being that brain, you still have to deal with exactly the same challenges that you dealt with before you read about this neurophysiology saying that it's all a bunch of neurons. This includes moral responsibility. We hold people responsible. In part, ironically, we have the fiction of free will 
in order that we can hold people responsible, namely a society in which you are condemned, punished, shamed for acting aggressively, selfishly, presumably that will lower the rate of aggression and, and selfishness, precisely because we respond to these contingencies, which kind of idealize us as having choice, but at the same time idealize those choices as being affected by contingencies of blame and esteem and reward and punishment. So you live life in the same way as before you learned about brain physiology, even as you recognize that there's no such thing as an autonomous soul. One of the strange ironies uh, here I find is that people, there's a sort of strand of thought, which I think deserves to be taken seriously for, I don't think it's altogether convincing, that if you don't believe in free will, then certain forms of criminal punishment become illegitimate or wrong because you're punishing somebody for something that's not in their control of freedom to have done. But ironically, advocates of that position fear that we will be morally judged if we don't follow the recommendation, that there's something morally deficient about people who want to continue jailing people for their actions, even though they didn't have free will. So they themselves actually immediately fall back into holding other people morally responsible for their insistence to hold people morally responsible, which is a very odd recursive uh, paradox. Steve, I want to end this conversation on a slightly different note, which is that, you know, I think you're a model of a scholar who knows how to engage a wide audience and write very clearly. And you've actually written very nicely about some of the precepts that help you do that and how people might be able to emulate that. There's a bunch of things in there. I particularly like the idea of a curse of knowledge and how to stop that from influencing your writing. Give our listeners some tips about how, I know that a lot of our listeners are scholars and academics or people who have a lot of domain expertise. If they want to communicate with a wider audience, want to write as clearly as possible, even within their own professions, what are some of the principles that they can steal from you? Yeah, yeah, and this, this is what I, the, the topic of uh, my book, The Sense of Style. And you identified, I think, the key cause of bad writing, which is the curse of knowledge, namely that when you know something, it's extraordinarily difficult to know what it's like not to know it. It becomes so instinctive that you don't even realize that you've got to describe physically a scene so that people can imagine it in their mind's eye. It's clear to you. It's not clear to them. A lot of the jargon and technical terms you may not even realize are jargon and technical terms that are specific to your professional bubble that the people even in the next office may not be familiar with. And that there's a kind of recursiveness to the curse of knowledge, namely just being aware of the curse of knowledge is not enough to escape it precisely because you don't know what's not obvious to you. And so the old advice of show it to someone else is really invaluable. And you're often shocked to find that what's self-evident is not so self-evident. So that's one. Another is to have the right mental model of the reading process. You're not with the person in the room when you write. They may be thousands of miles away. You might be dead when they're reading them. What is it you're actually doing with this person? What do you have in mind as you're tapping on a keyboard? And that model, there are a number of different ones. There's no single answer to it. But in the kind of writing that the people that you and I know and that, that you and I engage in, there is a model that has been called classic style by Mark Turner and Francine Noel Thomas, which is the model is you're with a peer, you're engaged in conversation, you've seen something in the world that they have not yet noticed. You orient them so that they can see it with their own eyes using conversation. Now, just that image of what you're doing when you're writing, a lot of particular bits of writing advice fall out of that. So that's the second one. 
A third is there's some general rules of just sentence construction, some of which were identified by some of the classic style guides, like Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, like omit needless words. Beautiful example of itself. It's three words long. And I'm sure you've had this experience as well, that sometimes when you go over a draft and your editor says, sorry, it's 900 words, we can only publish 800. And you squeeze it into the 800 words and it, it's kind of magically improves as if by a miracle. Aiming for concision often results in greater elegance and clarity in a way that academics often don't appreciate because they have a, a limited space. And other rules like put the new material at the end of the sentence, put the old material at the beginning of the sentence. There are a bunch of rules like that as well. Well, thank you very much. I think if we will at least bear in mind the curse of knowledge, as you're saying, that doesn't make it very easy to solve, but at least being aware of a problem is a really important thing. I sometimes give my students the dining hall test, which is, would you ever talk like this in a dining hall with your friends? And if you don't, but don't write your essay like that. I think there's a lot of silliness we engage in in writing, but we would never engage in in verbal communication and certainly uh, your model of clarity in both. Well, I feel like we've done a pretty good tour de force of your writing and your work. Leave us with some hopeful thought about how we might be able to get out of this pretty depressing political moment in the United States. Yes. Well, I think individuals matter. And just the brute fact that uh, Donald Trump is not going to be president as of Wednesday, and even uh, someone as uh, neutral as Joe Biden is taking over, will itself make a difference. People at the top, their quirks make an enormous difference for the national mood and the conduct of the country. There are things that we can build on. There are goals like the economy and infrastructure and the pandemic that uh, don't have to be politicized. There are resources of rationality in each of us. There are studies that show you show people fake news with a correction and they do change their minds. It is not hopeless. We shouldn't mistake the fanatical extremes for the large, moderate, rational center. Stephen Pinker, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Yasha, and good luck with persuasion. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces, 